Welcome to episode 188 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Now, many of you will will know about Alberta Alberta's uh, pause, its moratorium on wind and solar development uh, for seven months. That was announced. Uh, it wasn't. It was, it was about ten days ago, not last week, the week before. And we're recording this on August the fourteenth. So, I've been critical of it. Economists have been critical of it. I mean, everybody who's involved in energy who it understands the energy transition has been really critical of this, and especially because it's such a success story. Um, Alberta has the only deregulated wholesale electricity market in the, the country, and the uh, developers have come forward. This is unsubsidized wind and solar development. Uh, it's all if it can compete in Alberta's wholesale market, then it gets a, a, the permission to build and connect to the grid. That's the way it works. There's no other province that has that. And uh, last year, the province added one giga, gigawatt of new generating capacity. This year, it was scheduled to do two gigawatts of generating capacity. And a lot of times, these are under power purchase agreements that are done with with world-class uh, companies, Google and Microsoft and Amazon and so on, and because they want to green their operations, uh, redu reduce their carbon footprint. And so they're coming to Alberta and it, this is like the free market in action. If you're a free market uh, fan, uh, you should be applauding what's going on in Alberta. Instead, the uh, Smith UCP government has paused it because they're that uh, her rural constituency was concerned about the use of agricultural land for wind, for particularly for solar, and then uh, reclamation uh, of these projects once they've come to the end of their useful lifestyle. And of course, none of this needed a pause. All of this is, you know, uh, could have been dealt with in process, but under the Alberta Utilities Commission, there were other ways to do it without putting up a big stop sign in front of. Uh, global investors. This is nuts. And I said so on, on social media. I've said so in a couple of columns. But there's a gentleman that we're going to be, I'm going to be interviewing today. Uh, he, I was, I did a, an interview with him a couple of months ago about uh, the Alberta electricity system. David Gray is an energy economist. And he was involved in the design of this partially deregulated electricity system back in the 1990s. And I followed him on Twitter and I've enjoyed his 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 insights into the Alberta government's decision uh, around the moratorium, but he tweeted something or jeeted something, whatever we're calling it these days, uh, a few days ago that really caught my interest. And he said, "Done right, Alberta could emerge as a clean energy superpower." And I'm paraphrasing a bit here, a clean energy superpower in North America. I find that intriguing, and as an economist who understands markets, uh, I really, he's that, I'm not, but I want to know, you know, what he's thinking about that. So welcome to the interview, Dave. Well, thank you, Markham. Good to see you again. Well, likewise. And look, um, give us sort of the, the broad strokes on what you meant uh, in that tweet. Certainly. People don't or haven't internalized how much electricity we're going to need 
and moreover, how much the United States is going to need. I mean, we're talking about doubling or tripling the capacity of our electric systems to convert the uh, fleet to electric, right? We have an opportunity right now where we can probably do transmission easier through an agreement with our national governments trying to promote secure green energy for the future to take the two white elephant 500 kV HVDC lines we have on either side of Calgary and connect them first to our other provinces, but ultimately to the United States in order to sell green energy to millions of E-150s. Um, between British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan and the Northwest Territories, hydro, wind, solar and geothermal, this is the largest untapped green energy basin in the world. And, uh, you know, by mistake, our free market exposed that. We have 30,000 megawatts of additional green energy product uh, projects in queue, which is three times more than the, you know, province usually consumes. Gotcha. Okay. So, what if I understand this correctly, uh, there is untapped transmission capacity in Alberta. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of room on which to build, plenty of land on which to build uh, wind and solar farms, and particularly south of Calgary, where, you know, it's it's a lot mm -hmm. uh, drier and, and uh, it's more arid. You're not talking about, you know, first class farmland. Um, it has already has a wholesale market, which is a huge advantage. I mean, it just, it on and on. And then uh, the one thing that you, I know that you were hinting at, but you didn't mention in particular is there's very little East-West trade between the four Western provinces. So BC and Manitoba are both hydro provinces and in the middle, Saskatchewan and, and Alberta have been first coal. And now there's, they'll be mostly replacing that coal with natural gas. And so there's an opportunity here to trade to build inner ties between those four provinces so that the mm -hmm. we can basically use the hydro dams in, in the bookend provinces uh, for well, kind of like storage for renewables. Yeah. And then there's an opportunity to get in. I mean, many of these provinces are already tapped into the Western, uh, I forget what the name of that Western electricity market is. In the, the world's Pacific. largest machine. The Western Electric Coordinating Council is the world's largest machine, the largest interconnected thing ever made by man. There you well, Okay, there you go. They're already, so those provinces are for the most part already trading north and south with their American neighbors. Tiny, tiny little insignificant bits, but uh, except for Manitoba and British Columbia. Those two yes, are, yes. Exactly right. Alberta okay. not, has a little bit of trade with Montana. So, by building out the the, the uh, wind and solar capacity, storage capacity, building inner ties, building, taking better advantage of those uh, that unused capacity on the uh, on these two uh, high voltage uh, transmission lines, combined with the, the the solar resource, the wind resource, and the wholesale market, 
if properly if that system were properly designed, Alberta would go gang gangbusters and have enormous amounts of electricity to to export. It would support the other provinces in their decarbonization efforts. There, it would be able to decarbonize many of its much of its own industry, like the oil sands and and other you know petrochemicals up in the Edmonton area. On and on and on. So why are we not, faced with? And those, we make boatloads of money, just boatloads of money. <laughs> which astonishing. you think would appeal to to Albertans? Uh, you would think so. Um, you know, it'd be it would be lovely for us to hedge our bets, maybe just a little, just in case it turns out that. You know, the climate crisis is accepted finally to be a, a real problem and uh, people act on it. But, you know, in case that happens, maybe let's try an alternative industry that's not going to step on anybody's toes. I mean, if wind or solar can't compete with thermal generation, then in our marketplace, they won't get picked. Right. I mean, it really is, as you said, the freest of market uh, type of fundamentals that's going to make this work. And like I say, we've got we have got more potential than we can ever possibly use internally. And that is the real shame that we've got ourselves in these provincial silos, first on energy policy, but then in these political silos where for what can only be, you know, fairly obvious you know, socio-political targeting reasons, they've launched this cruise missile at Enviro Barbies, like me. Okay, I'm going to let that one pass. Because I want to ask you, again, I want to, okay, let's start picking apart the, 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 the components of this system that could be, the sure. potential system. And let's start with the unused transmission capacity. Please explain the history of those transmission lines and why, because they're high voltage, that's important, and why they're only half full. High voltage DC transmission lines were pioneered by Manitoba Hydro and Ontario Hydro in particular as a way to transmit energy over long distances at lower capital cost in particular. Um, better in terms of losses as well, but it's really the capital cost that is reduced by going to HVDC. We have two of those lines in Alberta that run a ridiculously short length. They're usually meant to go 1,000, 1,500 kilometers and longer, um, but we have two of them that run 300 kilometers, um, sort of on both sides of Highway 2. They were put in there, I can only believe with the guess that we're going to transmit power from the cogen facilities of the tar sands so the oil sands to nevada i think that was the plan uh, that of course didn't work out but nevertheless they installed those things at ratepayer expense and risk uh, which is why the transmission charges in alberta are now so ridiculous nevertheless in terms of physical capacity they can be increased to 500 kV, which is exactly what you need to transmit power to Nevada um, and or Vancouver and or Winnipeg. Okay, gotcha. Um, so when the when were these lines built, by the way? Uh, I think they were completed in like 2012. Okay, 
So relatively recently, uh, there were some assumptions behind their construction that didn't pan out. Now we've got this, which really is an untapped resource, right? I mean, the public has paid for it. Ratepayers have paid for it. And, and there would only be benefits. Uh, the more if, we, if you filled those up, then the cost per uh, unit of electricity would drop. And this is one of the great complaints of Alberta electricity consumers is that their pay, their fees, their distribution and transmission fees on their bill are extraordinarily high. And that leads to huge bills, particularly in the winter. You are correct. If those facilities were better used, it would drop everyone's charges. And I want to throw a wrinkle in here because uh, in my call, in my note that I wrote uh, about the, the moratorium uh, on wind and solar, I, I, I referenced a Alberta Utilities Commission study in, in 2021 about distribution and the panic you could read between the lines of all of the system users and, and particularly the utilities that distributed energy resources like behind the meter solar, and particularly solar, was going to be adopted by the big industrial users in Alberta and they would either drop off the grid entirely or uh, uh, use the, the grid for their supply to a much uh, smaller extent. And that then would have the opposite effect of uh, ratepayers would have to pay more to make up for the lost uh, business. Right. And, and, and the, this report is is it, it, it quite striking in you know saying okay well it's not here yet but we can see it coming and clearly the big some of the big industrial consumers uh maybe they're you know who knows pulp and paper mill or sawmill or you know something to do with you know gas processing plants who knows but clearly they're sending signals that they want to generate their own power if they're short generation they sure have an incentive yes ex exactly right so it seems to me that if the system gets built out the way you're talking, that that then should be uh, of some, uh, it should reassure those, the, the utilities and the other folks on the, on the grid, that there is a way to, to, uh, to, to use the system, use the grid to its full capacity, thereby keeping down those costs that they're worried about. Regulatory economics doesn't have that many colorful terms, but the one that applies here is the regulatory death spiral. Whereas your number of customers decreases, the price or the cost per remaining customer increases in sending them to defect further. Um, so yes, it would reverse the regulatory death cycle in Alberta. Well, uh, is Alberta in a regulatory death spiral or is it Probably. staring down the barrel of one? I, I have to admit, I, I'm, you know, I don't have any clients in the industrial space anymore. I, I closed my practice a couple of years ago. Uh, and so I can only imagine what they've been going through with prices, um, you know, going up as they have. I mean, but that's the bottom line incentive for anybody who's having to buy power off the grid is that by the time you add the transmission and energy charges together, you're looking at, you know, half a buck a kilowatt hour. It's, you know, it's not conducive to economic development of any sector other than um, private jets.
for electricity uh, executives. Okay, gotcha. Uh, all right, so we've established that there is ample uh, spare capacity on these HVDC lines. That's a big competitive advantage for Alberta. Mm -hmm. uh, the next one is the wholesale electricity market. And I have to confess, this is how that market operates and all of the intricacies is uh, a bit over my head. So please, uh, uh, wholesale Alberta Wholesale Electricity Market 101, give us the basics. So the Alberta Wholesale Electricity Market was set up to take... Um, and transition away from the regulated generators to something where they're um, they're competing on a supply and demand basis, hour by hour, every day. Um, and it's open for other parties to enter and provide generation with the theoretical benefits that come with that of um, bankruptcy, because <laughs> that's how nature reprices capital assets, you know, when they're, when they're out of date, uh, flexibility in terms of what generation comes on and off. And then this ability that's been very attractive to the renewable sector of being able to uh, come to agreements with customers in the space get online with your own generation and match the two together. So that's been why, uh, you know, green energy has taken off uh, in Alberta. Theoretically, this could work, you know, at any scale, it could be 10 times the size. There are other electricity markets that are much larger. Uh, unfortunately, we have several structural problems with our market that make it similar to Texas. And of course, until someone builds bigger enterprise, we, we have a real physical constraint on what we can do just within the square borders of Alberta. But if you could wave a magic wand and get the provinces to cooperate uh, with the feds on creating some sort of a market between them and a market for export, and I would also add uh, a market for uh, carbon offsets, we could turn Calgary into a green energy trading center hub for all of Western Canada, Western US, um, and you know, put to bed some of the issues we have of being a, a legacy hydrocarbon producer by being smart about energy in the future. We'll get to the uh, carbon credits in a, in a moment. Um, one of the, the, the work that I've done in the US uh, there are different types of market. Like there's the five minutes, uh, what is it? Five minute forward market, the, mm -hmm. the hour forward market. There's, and it seems like states like California that are at the forefront of this are coming up with these different types of markets to, that helps to smooth out the trading and, and smooth out the transactions that are taking place in the market. Can you mm -hmm. explain what some of those types of markets are and how they might be integrated into what Alberta is currently doing. So the biggest challenge we have in Alberta is that it has a unique electric market design. Uh, it's an energy only market, meaning if you generate zero, you get paid zero, um, which has all sorts of implications. It has uh, a marginal pricing scheme such that 
everyone gets paid whatever the highest price uh, offer that is accepted is paid. Um, and it allows a very unusual thing called economic withholding, which allows the generators that have the largest market share, if they have enough market power to raise the price in unpredictable and capricious ways. It's not a great model for smooth um, transition from forward to present. And it's a, a great misapplication of a spot market. But let's move on to markets of work. Uh, and they all have these features in common that they trade in the forwards. So those markets that you talked about, five minutes forward, an hour forward, a day forward, a month forward, that's where supply and demand are balanced in properly functioning markets. If you know there's going to be a new tax coming on, you can price for that and you know go out and contract against those risks. We don't have that here. We have um, a spot market that's maladapted to try and be a forwards market using some jiggery pokery that was popular in the 90s. If we had a, a, a if we had the same market for electricity we have for natural gas, there's no limit to how big you could make it. Maybe yeah, that's a that's a point you made in the interview you did with me a couple of months ago when we talked about economic withholding. And so mm -hmm. for listeners who haven't had a chance to watch that interview with Dave, he goes in and he talks about economic withholding in some detail. And so we don't have to do it here. Uh, you can either find it by scrolling back through our, our YouTube channel, or you can find it in the electricity playlist. That's probably the, the quickest way to get to it. Um, so what is it about the natural gas market that is so much better designed than the electricity market in Alberta? It has three characteristics that the thing being traded, which is a... Um, a you know, gas promise in the future for a given amount of money is firm, meaning that the provider guarantees to pro uh, produce it for you. It's physical, meaning you take possession of it and can resell it if that is your incentive um, and um, forward. So all the balancing of supply and demand is happening as far ahead of the spot market as possible and the spot market only serves as an imbalance market. Okay. So given the fact that Alberta already has a well-designed market for one commodity, uh, why have we, because uh, I've never heard anybody say that, oh, we do it really well in natural gas. Why don't we just do the same thing in electricity? So your suggestion is new. Uh, and I say that, you know, I follow a number of the uh, energy economists uh, in Alberta, people like Blake Schaefer and Andrew Leach. Mm -hmm. And with respect to them, maybe they have mentioned it and I I'd missed it. Um, but certainly this is not a hot topic of co uh, conversation in, in the local Tim Hortons. And, and I suspect it's not in the Department of Energy or the AUC or any place else where it needs to be. So why are we not, why are we not hearing about it? As you were framing the question, I'm reminded of um, a wrinkle in the EPCOR distribution tariffs, where for small commercial customers, they charge by the kilowatt. For customers between 50 and 150, they charge by the kilovolt amp, which if you understand electricity is just slightly different. And then bigger ones, they charge by the kilowatt again. And so I asked them, why do you do that? Well, it's the way we've always done it, right? We haven't seriously entertained improvements to our market for a decade. And the failing to find a better mechanism for price discovery than allowing the 
you know, basically wholesale market uh, piracy. That's <laughs> um, called you know, wholesale market power to intercede and drive the prices up four or five times what they should be for two or three years is just a bad way to run a railroad. You know, if you have properly functioning markets, they take all the expected forward stuff into account and give you a pretty smooth transition from one place to the next without these ridiculous price excursions. Okay, so we've talked about the transmission system, spare capacity, lots of opportunity mm -hmm. there. We've talked about the capacity uh, in, in Alberta. It's got great wind and solar resources. Uh, we haven't talked about, we've talked a little bit about the opportunity for east-west trade by building inner ties. And I, I guess I need to point this out to uh, to our listeners is that if you go to the US and I, you know, on Twitter, I mentioned a couple of times that uh, a few weeks ago, I was, I participated in a US Energy Association technical press briefing. And so there was a panel of four journalists, I was one of them, and there was a panel of four uh, executives who are who came from the, the regional uh, transmission organizations, the RTOs, which is part of the planning infrastructure in the US. And the RTOs cover as many as 13 or 15 states. And there's like there's uh, seven or eight of them, nine of them, something like that in the US. And then at the federal level, you have the you have FERC, the Federal uh, Energy uh, Regulatory Commission. And Canada has none of that. So if we're going to if we're going to talk about we're going to do some regional uh, electricity system planning, uh, if we're going to do it regionally, if we're going to do it federally, uh, we don't have the institutions to do it. We don't have the mechanisms to have those conversations. And so everything starts at the political level because in Canada the constitution dictates who is responsible for energy and or for well in this case the provinces get not quite exclusive control over or jurisdiction over energy, but pretty close. And so the way the electricity systems have grown up here is we we have uh, essentially 10 little islands that don't talk to each other, don't trade with each other. They, you know, they do their own thing and they don't worry about what the, the neighboring provinces is, is doing. And in fact, they occasionally when they do cooperate, they usually get into into big fights like uh, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador have done. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of that's the history here and and it's a long it's a long history you know 125 years of history and as, as much as I, I appreciate the fact that this is hard and that there's not a lot of political momentum there's no you know there's no nobody in the in the media nobody in the in the um, uh, in the public sphere is calling for these kinds of redesign of Canadian uh, power grids of of, you know, for more markets, for more east-west trade, all of that kind of stuff. So, based on your long history in in the Alberta electricity system, where is there any leverage someplace where we can start to have that conversation? If you have to change the constitution, it's a non-starter. So, I would just go around it. Um, at some point in time, people have to recognize their own self-interest in cooperating with our neighbors, both in order to maintain our competitive advantage as an electricity supply region uh, and not let our prices get out of hand, destroying all of our other industries, but also as this opportunity for export. And so if I was the Minister of Energy, 
for the federal government and really wanted to get all the provinces on side, I would come with a Santa Claus sized bag of money to buy some new transmission lines, buy a share out of rate base of those HVD sign DC lines that we already have and establish a separate, uh, essentially marketing platform for interprovincial and international trade in green energy. So essentially the, the federal government would create a new institution, a new body that would, that would uh, uh, facilitate this trade. And then that might be the, the foundation upon which we have these other, yeah. the institution within which we have these other conversations and to get the provinces talking and to get changes uh, underway. If if you had an agreement between the federal government's corporation and the provinces on how you can wheel power from generators to the border or wherever it is that you want to move it, we could get to the sort of rational sharing of load that we used to do in the good old days, right? So BC and Alberta used to trade back and forth day and night between hydropower and coal, because uh, coal plants, thermal plants in general, run best flat out, um, most efficient that way. Uh, but they could vary their hydro and essentially use it as a battery. So it was, you know, it's a great logical exchange. Uh, we've lost the ability even to do that. Um, uh, what we need to be thinking about now is much bigger about how much, you know, of a, a sector can we grow if we all cooperate? You know, if, uh, together we could all do better if we could just get together. There's another advantage here that uh, seems to me that they would benefit all provinces, but particularly Alberta. And that is the ability to use that new system to foster innovation. And I'm thinking in particular in a couple of areas, uh, geothermal would be one, closed loop yeah. geothermal. Uh, yeah. Ever Technologies out of Calgary has got this amazing system uh, mm -hmm. where you're essentially using oil sands drilling techniques. You basically using uh drilling uh you're you're drilling uh pipe into the ground and joining them up to make a like a radiator mm -hmm. and, and then the earth's heat heats up the the, the pipe it heats yeah. up the water and you not only have you have hot water which you can use for process industry you know as process heat for for like petrochemicals or the oil sands and you can make electricity with it so that's that's one area and and then there are other things like uh, you know methane pyrolysis to uh, to generate hydrogen and hydrogen. Uh, the idea has been floated that you use uh, like you know uh, surplus wind and solar to make hydrogen. You put it down in salt caverns and and so on, and you store that. And then when you need it, it's like having natural gas, and you put it into these you know power plants that are now have gas turbines. You have now instead you have dual fuel turbines that can run on natural gas or hydrogen and that's your dispatchable power in the middle of winter when it's 40 below and you you really you really mm -hmm. need it and and it seems like you know that this is a we talk about it a little bit but we talk about these innovations as if they're disconnected from the Alberta uh, power grid from the, the from the system whereas if if we took this approach that you're talking about and we we built this new system, 
then that would incentivize the the ever technologies and geothermal anybody else who's innovating in in that kind of space it would it would it would uh, incentivize innovation around hydrogen as as uh, for use in power generation and who knows what else it would in, it would incentivize probably a lot and this that would be a huge missed opportunity that we if we don't do that the biggest in our history okay that's 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 discouraging dave I'm an it's economist. A, I'm supposed to be, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah, you know, journalists have the same disease. You know, we, we, we're kind of supposed to stick to the facts and the evidence. It, it literally would be hundreds of billions of dollars of energy. I mean, there, we have, like I say, people have put in 30,000 megawatts of projects in queue, knowing that we're never going to be able to develop 30,000 megawatts of green energy in our closed system because the opportunity is there if we ever open up. Okay. So- And there's, and there's $4 trillion chasing green um, generation opportunities, $4 trillion. Uh, it, it doesn't make any sense to me to say goodbye to that just to prove a political point or make a political you know, score, whatever it is these days. I, I often refer to what's going on in the United States as, as a comparator with what's not going on in Canada. Mm -hmm. And the Americans, uh, God bless them, you know, they have all sorts of problems down there. But one of the things mm -hmm. they do is when they begin in innovating in an area, when they see an opportunity, like, okay, hang on a second, we can be number one in this, we can make a bunch of money, we can do things better, more efficiently, we can lower our costs, we can all of that stuff. Boy, they don't they don't hesitate. They mm. go hell bent for leather. And and I interview like like those RTO executives I was telling you about. Mm -hmm. So there was one up in Colorado. I interviewed them after the technical briefing with the USEA, and they were saying, "Well, yeah, we're I mean we're already like thirty three percent renewables, and we're going to get to fifty percent by twenty twenty five, and by twenty thirty we're going to be at seventy percent, and we're mm -hmm. going to use hydrogen as storage, and we're going to do all these things. And if we can't do them, then we'll do something else to get there, you know. Yeah. And it's it's that kind of I mean, we talk Alberta brags about its can do attitude." But it pales. It's it's like it's like when my buddies in Alberta used to say, "Well, I'm a redneck." I said, "Dude, I've I've lived in Texas. I you're a mm -hmm. pink neck. I've, I've I know a redneck. You're a pink neck. You ain't no redneck." And it's the same kind of thing. Is, is that you know Alberta says it's can do. Yeah, it's mm. maybe you know it's you know that's just it's a lot of narrative and it's it's not a, which is not to take away. I mean, this is the province that developed the oil sands and, well, and it's another thing. But we on need... this subject, on this topic, it is a can not do attitude. We need the same attitude as when we developed the oil sands and everybody poo pooed us that we couldn't do it. Um, you know, this is bigger than the oil sands well, you know hard to believe but it's it's honestly it's the largest untapped potential of green power that you can think of i mean just think of how big western canada is compared even to the united states it's um mind-boggling 
I'm going to I want to advance a hypothesis here, Dave, because you brought up the oil sands and and for our listeners who don't know, uh, the oil sands got started in the '60s and kind of struggled in the '70s, and then Premier uh, Saint Peter Lougheed, who became Premier in 1971, basically made it a mission to develop the oil sands. Did a whole bunch of innovative things, including working with the federal government of the day, and and kicked that off. And did a whole bunch of other things in the oil and gas industry. But here's where here's the thing that I wanted to say, is when he did them, the oil companies of the day bitterly, bitterly opposed him. Now he's saint. Everybody loves Peter Lougheed in Alberta. And they forget that the, the Calgary Petroleum Club banned him from their premises. They hated him so much. But I, here's my hypothesis. Back in the day, the oil companies at that time were not big enough and powerful enough to stand up to someone like Peter Lougheed. They are much bigger and much more powerful today and politically powerful they're very skilled at wielding that political power in a way that they weren't 50 years ago. And that's and, and so Alberta has an incumbency dilemma. It's it is in its biggest industry, oil and gas, is being rapidly and severely disrupted. It's facing an existential uh, crisis. There is no easy pivot for that industry. Like you can talk about the the auto industry. Here it is faced with you know EVs with electrification, and the the incumbents can say, well, hang on a second, I can make an electric EV. Yes, I have to you know retool a lot, and we have to learn software, and we have to do batteries and all of that kind of stuff. But I can do that. I mean, that's basically a car, and we know how to make cars. But there is no easy pivot for the oil and gas industry. What do you go into? Like, you know, and so what they do then is they double down on the status quo that's all they know. They cut costs, they they cut staff, they look for subsidies, they, they become a classic sunset industry, right? Clinging on by their fingertips, uh, hoping that somehow they can keep the gravy train going for as long as they can. And it's that incumbency dilemma, because they've so captured the politics, there is not a hope in hell that Premier Danielle Smith of the United Conservative Party will stand up. She is bought and paid for, by the oil and gas industry. And she will defend their interests and her cabinet ministers will defend that interest till their dying breath. And that is the, the thing that prevents the kind of conversations, the necessary conversations that you and I have been talking about. It, it stifles innovation and it stifles change and it stifles the conversation about innovation and change. Your response. Pass the beer nuts. <laughs> now you have to explain that. That's a that's an inside joke, folks, that Dave has been making on, on Twitter the last few days. Cracks me up, but Dave, you got to explain it. Yeah, you know, uh, what it um from the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing shall ever be made, right? It's very clear that interests are being promoted that are not in the general interest. And not really even in common sense. I mean, why would you shut down an industry that's providing jobs, employment, and, and, and money into your economy um, during their busy season? You know, at least do it in winter, right, where they're not constructing. Uh, but it's it can only be as like a political attack, right? It's we want to offend the sort of people that are offended by us stopping 
green energy development, right? People that are that are wedded in their mind to the environment. And I, I find it, well, it's as anyone who's followed science or, you know, tries to, you know, acknowledge what truth and re reality is, at least as best we can find it. Uh, we've known about climate change for a very long time. There's no point in arguing about it. But that's where we're at. We, we have people who are arguing that climate change isn't an issue. And we have those people as senior advisors to this government, right? I, you know, I, I know them. I've been called Climate Barbie and uh, other, you know, green names. Um, yes, you have. <laughs> by people that I know. And they're great in oil and gas. I mean, I, full credit to what they know about oil and gas, but man, they don't get that we have a real problem. And it doesn't matter if we find it troublesome or inconvenient. I hate to quote Al Gore, it's, you know, inconvenient, but becoming pretty self-evident that whether we like it or not, the world is moving past oil pretty quickly now. Right. And, and, I, and I want to make the point here is that's the climate argument. I generally... Uh spend less time on the climate argument, much less, and more on the energy transition side, which is almost the transition to clean energy technology is going to take place re regardless of whether or not we're concerned about the climate, right? The the, the technology is mature, the, the markets are accepting, the costs are competitive, on and on and on. Like We are going to electrify transportation and climate policy will only dictate how quickly we do it. I don't know about that. I, um, well, good luck to you trying to disprove it. So, for example, if someone came out with a technology tomorrow that for five cents a liter could absorb or reabsorb all of the carbon dioxide from a liter of gasoline and turn it into limestone, um, these problems with using hydrocarbons, at least in that context, would be done. Right. If we had a ready way of sucking carbon dioxide back out of the atmosphere, and unfortunately, we're going to need to find one. Right. If that was economic, you could carry on with using fossil fuels, knowing that you're you know, still balancing the planet. It's effectively geoengineering. But if it was cheap, I expect it would be done. You, you could and you but you wouldn't. Because a on a total cost of ownership, it's cheaper to drive an electric vehicle, and it has all sorts of other values. Like it's a you know it's a rolling iPhone. It's it's it can power your house. It could got better torque. It's got it, it is a superior vehicle in almost all respects, and it's going to get better and better and cheaper and cheaper over time. The, trust me, buddy. Uh, I know or, electricity or is your thing. I, I will. I will yield to your your highly informed opinion. Um, you know, with the caveat that there are no facts about the future. <laughs> and that's a fair comment. And on that note, we're gonna we're gonna stop our philosophizing and our and our looking into the our crystal ball into the future. And Dave, thank you very much for this. Uh, this is a great conversation. We need more of these kinds of conversations. And we need to keep beating on the collective thick head of Alberta policymakers. And I should point out uh, business and political elites, 
These are people, you know, the folks who are sipping scotch in the Calgary Petroleum Club, who are who occupy the political offices in the Alberta legislature, who sit in the chambers of commerce around the province. These are the folks who, in fact, are the impediment. They are the limiting factor here. And the those are attitudes that we need to change. And we're going to do our best here at Energy Media to present them with evidence, facts, good journalism, and hopefully they can make better decisions. So, Dave. Thank you very much for your contribution. Thanks, Markham. You know, if we were just a little bit more like Texas and went for the money, we'd be super green, man. Anyway, thanks for having me on. Mm -hmm.